Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 142. I wanted to get to it last week. We will start with 142. We have some rabbit trails to go down that will tie into New Testament doctrine. Psalm 142 is a psalm that was written by David. David was on the run when Saul realized that he was a threat. Saul took a spear, threw it right at David, pinned him against the wall, didn't hurt him. I have a picture of some of his garments probably being put up against it. We use the terminology today, I got pinned to the wall or something like that. Well, David was, and after that, he took off. Jonathan tried to intercede, but when he did, his uh, father was just upset with Jonathan as he was with David. So David's on the run, and a majority of these, including this one, it tells us it was written in a cave. I don't know if, if you look under 142, if it, that says that in your Bible. It does in mine. I'm going to save this for Sunday. Actually, Sunday's message is called In the Cave. It's one of two caves. The cave of Adullah could have been. Uh, or the cave uh, at, at En Gedi, and, which is a beautiful refuge down by the Dead Sea. But... David would be fleeing from one to the other. If we talk about the one at at Abdullah, um, when David was there, he was there for a period of time. About 400 people came to him and said all those who were uh, destitute, all those who were in debt, and um, uh, they joined themselves unto David. They had nothing going for themselves, so they hung out with David. They're never referred to again in those terms, all those who are in debt, all those who are destitute. Uh, After being with David for years, we read about them later as David's mighty men. And so there was this transformation, very much a parallel, that when we as Christians come to Christ and we start hanging out with him, getting to know his nature, well, we become like him, just like those men became like David. But having said that, David, if, if it's one thing that, um, that he did, he laid it, he laid it all out. Um, he didn't take it to man. He took it right to the Lord. So let's read it, and I'm going to come back and comment on Psalm 142. It's written from a cave, either Abdullah or En Gedi. David said, I cried out to the Lord with my voice, and with my voice to the Lord I made my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I declared before him my trouble. And when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path and the way in which I walk. They have secretly set a snare for me. Look at my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. And bring my soul out of prison, that I might praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. With me. Now, just in studying a little bit about this psalm, um, I'm not going to go where I want to go on, on Sunday in talking about this. Uh, 
Um, but I ran across a guy, um, F-E-N-E-L-O-N, Fenelon, or something like that. But he wrote some comments on Psalm 142. And this is his take after reading Psalm 142. I liked it because it talks about the Lord knows everything anyway, and so why not really get into it with him and put all your cards on the table, good, glad, bad, or sad, whatever. He says, tell God what's in your heart as one unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles, that he can comfort you. Tell him your joys, that he may sober them. Tell him your longings, that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes, that he may help you to conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations, that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifferences to good, your depraved taste for evil, your instabilities. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust in others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, and how pride disguises you to yourself and to others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, needs, troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. You will never exhaust the subject. It is continually being renewed. People who have no secrets from each other never want subjects of conversation. They do not weigh their words, for there is nothing to be held back. Neither do they seek from something to say. Uh, They talk out of the abundance of their heart without consideration, just what they think. Blessed are they who attain to such familiar, unreserved conversations with the Lord. I mean, just go ahead and just pour it all out because he knows it anyway. I call it walking and talking with Jesus. And um, I like to be be alone. But when I'm alone, (laughs) you're never alone. Uh, When you're alone, you're with, with your best friend. And um, that's what you were created for. That's the reason I am. That's the reason you are to develop. And the reason he allows these sort of things is I don't think David would be calling out to him unless he's pinned. You know, he's pinned down. Saul wants his neck. No, No ifs, ands, and buts about it. He wants him taken out. So, you know, anybody can be fearful. Uh, fearful for their life when they're in a life and death situation. And uh, David is in one here. Happens to be written from a cave. Again, uh, we'll get into more of this on Sunday. It's interesting when you do a study through the scriptures, people who end up in caves and how they get there and what happens to them once they get there. And um, I'll tease you just a little bit. It usually occurs after mountaintop experiences and enough of a hint for Sunday. So Psalm 142 is called In the Cave, and uh, that's where we'll be on Sunday morning. Uh, but this, this contemplation here is, um, notice it says, I will pour out my complaint before you. He doesn't complain to people. He's not a, he, doesn't, he isn't that sort of a guy that would take it to anybody other than the Lord. I will declare him my, my trouble. So to his credit, here's the model. This is how it's supposed to be done for people who really know the Lord. People who don't know the Lord, well, they're always talking to others about their problems. Uh, 
um, or about other people's problems, period. All right, Psalm 143. We'll hold that for Sunday. We're going to get sidetracked here, and I want to get into doctrine a little bit tonight. So on Psalm 143, let's read it, and I'll come back and highlight verse 2. Again, a Psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my supplication. In your faithfulness answer me, and in your righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight, God bless you, no one living is righteous. You could sneeze at any time, and you never know when it's going to happen. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me, and my heart within me is distressed. I can remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the works of your hands. It's like taking a walk and just marvel at his creation. Um, Or the wonder of it, you know, small things. I got a bee in the car yesterday, and he got my attention. I was worried because I tried to get the bee and keep driving all at the same time. But just the smallest little thing can really freak you out if you're in the wrong situation. Well, just a little thing just buzzing around, but um, it can be minute uh, or it can it can be glorious as you consider the works of his hands and how awesome it all is. I meditate on your works. I muse at the work of your hands. Everything's a miracle. Everything you look at's a miracle. You're a miracle. And again, it blows my mind. I think of seven, what, billion people in the world? Seven different person, billion personalities. Seven different, seven billion different voice, tone. Um, uh, seven different faces that he's only got this much space to work with. From here to here, from here to here. Everybody's got two eyes, everybody's got two ears, nose, mouth, and yet we're all different. It's incredible. And unless you're identical twins, uh, there's nobody that looks like you. And you're one of a kind. And that's what makes you valuable to him. You're the only one that there is. So we, we esteem something valuable by just how rare it is. So how rare is the Hope Diamond? Well, it's very, very rare. Therefore, it's worth a whole lot of money. Well, there's only one of you, so what are you worth? More than you could possibly imagine. His thoughts are you are like the sands of the sea, Psalm 139. And when I awake, I'm still thinking about you. He's, he's transfixed with you. Goes on to say, I spread out my hands to you. Now, right here's another case for lifting your hands and worshiping the Lord wherever. And um, um, it's interesting how this works because... Um, we're sensitive to uh, many times what people think instead of what the Lord thinks. And, and, and wanting to do it spontaneously and honestly, uh, that's part of it. But then they're thinking, well, if I do that, what, would somebody look at me? What are they, they going to think if I do that? Or better yet, when you're just standing on the seashore by yourself and you do it. And just go like that. And you're... you're conscious that you want to do it to the Lord, but at the same time, you don't want people to think that you're being weird, because we don't like to be thought of as being weird. Somebody want to say amen to that? We like to be thought of as being normal. 
We like to be liked. Tough thing about being a Christian, you're not going to be liked. And the way things are going, you're going to be more unliked and unliked because of doctrines and we hold this book to be sacred. We hold it to be inerrant without error. And as a result, it causes us to take certain positions in our life that we can't compromise on. And as a result, you'll lose some friends because of it. Jesus did. He says, don't think I've come to bring peace. I haven't. I've come to bring division. Great. Father against a, a, a father against a son, a mother against her daughter. In your own family, you'll have that, that division simply and for no other reason that you believe in Jesus Christ. And that brings a sword. And um, what's happening today is we're trying to de-emphasize doctrine for the sake of unity. And I'll be talking about that in just a little bit. Anyway, David spread out his hands, verse 5. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. What a great description. Answer me speedily, O Lord, my spirit fails. And do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I will lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. And lead me in the land of uprightness. And revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. And for your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercies, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. Again, David fully pouring his heart out to the Lord here. But let's go back to verse 2. And what I do when I go through the Psalms, I try to pick out one thought that sort of struck me. And then um, um, do a search primarily in the New Testament. In this case, verse 2 says, do not enter into judgment with your servant. Why? Because in your sight, no one living is righteous. Now, in my Bible, there's next to it Galatians 2, verse 16. And I'm going to have you turn to the book of Galatians at this time. But because I just don't want to do 16 because I want to teach a little bit on the Apostle Paul. Sometimes... People don't realize that <clears throat> we think, well, Paul got saved and he, he got knocked off his high horse going on the road to Damascus and, and from there he became the Apostle Paul and, um, and um, his life took off from there. Well, nothing's farther from the truth. The Bible says not to lay hands on any man suddenly lest they fall into the snare of the enemy, which is being lifted up in pride. So there's this breaking process. I find it almost without exception, beginning with Moses, 40 years, uh, learning all the wisdom of Egypt and all that it entailed. And I think the dark side is also in that, the occultism that was involved in Egypt. And then 40 years in the desert, getting broken, and being content 
And the Lord just showing up one day in a burning bush and says, I got a job for you to do. He says, I can't talk. You know, don't send me, send Aaron. He's a great speaker, but not me. He didn't even want the job. The Bible said that he was the humblest man in the world. Holy smokes, that's saying, that's saying quite a bit. John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. But as far as humility, it says that Moses was. And when the Lord says, I'm sending you, he says, you got the wrong guy. Hebrews tells us that forsaking um, Egypt, um, forsaking the pleasures of this present world, he chose instead the suffering of being a Christian. Uh, Or not a Christian, but just um, uh, those that would be called out of Egypt. So after the breaking, now for the next 40 years, years, God uses him. He lived 120 in all as God's instrument. And um, the same is true with the disciples. The Lord did not send them out. They were with him day and night for, for three years. Before we had uh, our, our Bible colleges in the early Jesus movement days, um, Chuck would send you out, but only after you were there every Sunday, every Wednesday, and there for three years. Uh, then he would send you out, but not before. Now, as we look at Paul, he didn't just go out and start preaching. And let's just pick it up in verse 8, and I, I just want to show you the progression that Paul is no exception, even though he's highly trained as a Pharisee. But he spent three years in Arabia, or a couple of years at least, just with the Lord, being taught by nobody else other than the Lord. Let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse Eight. Uh, no, let's go back at six. He says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now, I'm going to come back and reread this and talk about different gospels other than the gospel that the Bible teaches, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you. They want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you let, uh, that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Well, Joseph Smith and Moriah, or Moroni, or whatever the angel's name was, that's exactly what happened. An angel appeared, gave him a different gospel, gave him a special pair of eyeglasses um, to decipher the code and wrote the book of of Mormons, that we have a whole other gospel, making Jesus, not God, but um, an angel equivalent to, to Lucifer. In Mormonism, Lucifer and Jesus are brothers. Isn't that great? Well, that's another gospel. How did it get there? An angel. So Paul said, even if an angel comes and preaches another, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than we have received, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Now, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I still seek to please men? This is the first thing you've got to wrap around your head when you get saved. Your people-pleasing days are over. And because you're, you're not gonna, your friends aren't going to be pleased, and... Uh, <laughs> The guys at work aren't going to be pleased. Um, there will be people you're going to run across that notice that you're different. How come you're different? And that um, um, may come where they begin to ask questions. I call them divine appointments. 
So as we walk just abiding in the Lord, we make ourselves available at any given time to be, to be used by the Lord. But not to please men, or do I, do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. But I have made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. And I like this, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm glad that the way I got saved had nothing to do with it and nobody was around me. I was watching Billy Graham in 1970. I didn't have any other influence except this guy preaching the gospel. By the way, if you, if you got some spare time, go back to the old, you can Google him, um, Billy Graham in olden times, like the 70s. Oh my goodness. What a wonderful, powerful anointing on Billy Graham's life. And uh, no wonder so many people got saved in, uh, in the height of his ministry. I was one of them. Paul's saying it was just one-on-one. It was me and Jesus, and that's what he's saying here. I didn't, nobody talked to me about it. I wasn't influenced by anybody other than the Lord himself, but through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. I even tried to destroy it. And I was advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. So when he had the call, He didn't go and talk with the boys and say, this is what happened. I didn't do that. Nor did I go to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So from the time he gets saved, he's not out um, uh, going door to door. Not at all. He's in the desert. He's getting groomed, just like Moses, and uh, just like David is being groomed in, in the Psalms. Then after three full years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I remained with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, this is where we learn that um, one of the names of James, probably the leader in Acts 15, who stood up, it says it was James, who wrote that letter concerning how to deal with the Gentiles. So none of the, disciples, none of the brothers of the Lord believed on the Lord until after the resurrection, and one of them was a brother that he had whose name was James. So much for the perpetual virginity of Mary, that there was only Jesus. No, Mary came one day and it says, Jesus, your, your brothers and your sisters are here, plural, in both sense. Both brothers, plural, and sisters, plural. So there was at least five in the family altogether, and one of them, his name is James, the Lord's brother. Okay, now concerning these things, which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterwards, I went into the region of Assyria and Sicily. And I was unknown by face to the church of Judea, 
which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, and he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith, which was once uh, he tried to destroy, and they glorified me there in God. Okay, I want to keep going in uh, chapter 2. Notice this, after 14 years, do the math and start adding to us. How long was it before Paul actually really um, is known for anything that he's written about in the book of Acts or any of the epistles um, that he wrote to? After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I also took Titus with me, and I went up by revelation. And I communicated to them that gospel which I had preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, who were uh, those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, uh, was compelled to be circumcised. But this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth. I like that. Stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. In other words, there were those who didn't like the freedom that Paul was expressing with these Gentiles, and they wanted to put this guilt trip, law trip on them, um, getting Titus circumcised, and they came in under the radar. They came in stealth, and, and they wanted to disrupt the joy and the freedom that Paul was obviously radiating out to wherever he went. Now, to whom we, we did not yield submission, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But for those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows uh, personal favoritism to no man, uh, for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. I like that. Those who were supposed to be somebody, Paul's saying, I, I didn't gather anything new from them. But on the contrary, now he's going to switch gears. Not only did he not, uh, he, he just saw them as ordinary Joes. And that's the way we should view everybody, including Billy Graham on down. And, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised had been committed to me as gospel for the circumcision was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. Now here's where it gets dicey. When James, Cephas, which would be Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, do you see the, the sort of the little slam there? If they're not pillars, then who are? Who seem to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the, the circumcised. Uh, they, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also eagerly do. All right, now here's the problem. But, now we have a but in verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. Oh, what I wouldn't give to see that on a rerun. Here's the Apostle Paul. Here's Peter, toe-to-toe, the thriller in Manila. <laughs> you know, <we're laughs> 
Muhammad and Frazier. Here's the two biggest heavyweights, and what are they doing? They're going toe-to-toe. I withstood him face-to-face, I mean, eyeball-to-eyeball, because he was to be blamed. Peter to blame? Yep. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. So he was hanging out with the Gentiles. But then somebody came up from Jerusalem, and when that happened, they sort of backed off from hanging with the Gentiles, and they separated themselves, um, those who were of the circumcision. So now what Peter does, and everybody sees it, he gravitates just towards the Jews, and he goes away from the Gentiles, but that didn't happen until James sent somebody up from Jerusalem. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, if you being a Jew live in manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? Peter, Pete, listen up. You know you can't do this. You want to live under circumcision, which means you want to be able to keep the commandments and the law. You can't do that. And now you want to lay this trip on Gentiles on top of it? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might Be justified, here it is, by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now, this gets back to the psalm. And I know we've gotten a little away from it, but what did we read? There's none that are righteous, right? And then I had the the cross-reference to Galatians 2, verse 16. And that's what... Um, the point I want to drive home. For here we see uh, nobody can do it right, nobody can live according to the law, and you can't be justified that way. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are fallen sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Pete, what are you doing? What kind of what what message are you sending by your actions gravitating back and showing a separation between Jews and Gentiles? There's neither Jew, there's neither Gentile, there's neither male, there's neither female, there's neither bond nor slave. But a person is uh, in Christ, and that makes the playing field level, and we're all one in him. Good time for an amen. Amen. And so, but that was being, that, that was by Peter's example, Peter, Paul calls him out. Says, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. I stood up to him face to face and said, what you're doing is not right. Verse 19, for though the law died, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. This great verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, 
then Christ died in vain. Boy, that sums it all up there. All right, now for my sidetrack. I'm gonna put something on the screen tonight and talk about other gospels, because that's what he talked about here. If anybody comes and starts presenting another gospel, then do what Paul did to Peter, call him out. Name names. I'm naming the name of John Calvin tonight, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about Calvinism because it didn't exist, and it is another gospel, and didn't um, come to exist until John Calvin came into existence. Calvin's time frame is, oh, his influence was between 1541 and 1564. And what we have, uh, I talked to Robert Cogden today, um, because I was reading a book that he, a booklet he wrote called The New Calvinism, The Upside Down Gospel. It is another gospel. I really wanted him to come to our prophecy conference um, in September. He's 70 years old now, and he was looking at his calendar and says, Dwight, I got two conferences that same weekend. I don't know how he's pulling that off. And I thought, oh, bummer, I really want him to come because this is a real issue in the church today, especially the new Calvinism, which isn't really new Calvinism at all. Um, But some of you are a little bit familiar with John Calvin. Uh, You're a little bit familiar with the terminology Calvinism. But I like Wednesday nights because it gives me an opportunity to go down a rabbit hole, a little sidetrack. And for those of you who say, what's the difference? There's a... Good Bible teachers out there that are Calvinists and um, they're brothers in Christ. Well, in talking to um, Robert, he says, boy, these guys are slick, Dwight. They'll buddy up to you and they will tell you everything you want to hear. As far as they're concerned, the ends justifies the means. They'll out and out lie to you. But you really don't know where they're at until um, you dig in and find out what they really believe especially in their definition of words, especially in the definition of the word sanctification. A Calvinist interpretation of what he considers sanctification and what the Bible teaches is sanctification are two different things entirely. There's no way I can get into this and scratch the surface. The good news is Robert is gonna join us live stream Skype, so we're gonna Skype him in. And... um, uh, he really wants to be here. He enjoyed very much. He wrote the book on the European Union. He's one of the leading, he's from Europe, he's a Brit, lives in the, in the States. But um, he says, you wouldn't believe, he, he was telling me about the, the big split that's happening right now in the Southern Baptist Convention over this, over the new Calvinism that's, that's creeping in. Let's just put this up on the screen, it'll, it'll help. I'm gonna have you turn to a second Peter at this time. Uh, while you're turning, um, I'm going to try to make this simple by putting up a very simple diagram. I got this out of uh, uh, Robert Congdon's book called New Calvinism, Upside Down Gospel. Guys, can you put it up on the screen? And, um, well, I can tell they're scrambling back there. I know they were working on it earlier. There it is. All right, we have two... Um, figure three and, and figure four down here. And um, let's begin with the one on top where it begins with election. And I'm just going to, I'm quoting from Robert Congdon 
um, right now. I'm just going to read a little bit, and then I'll come back and I'll explain the charts. What you're looking at on the top one, this is Orthodox Reformed theology. Now, when I say Reformed theology, I'm talking Calvinistic Calvinism at the same time. Uh, that places regeneration before faith or recognition of the Savior. According to this view, God does all the work, and individuals merely recognize or confirm what he has already done. According to Calvinism, um, you are either predestined to eternal life, or you are predestined by God before time began to hell. There is no free will involved in your decision, and it is probably the primary root of Calvinism. I'm going to come back to that. Unfortunately, this, this view makes man a spiritual robot that enables God to fulfill the covenant of redemption with his son. The gospel of the air is based solely upon factual, objective work of God alone and requires no actual personal involvement of individuals other than your intellectual head, recognition of Christ's act, and repentance of his or her lowly state. Yet Peter teaches that faith begins a process of sanctification and then growth. So let's just walk through this. The first thing that happens at the very beginning is that you're elected. This is, um, I could really get sidetracked on this, but I'm just going to go through and uh, take something that I just pulled off the internet to to make it somewhat um, easier for you to get a grasp on who John Calvin is and where did Calvinism come from. Calvin, first of all, he was strongly believed in infant baptism. Um, Calvin believed in sacraments equal to the word of God. So we're, we're talking about the works equal to uh, the scriptures. Calvin believed in amillennialism, which basically means there is no literal 1,000-year reign. And he was against premillennialism. Calvin believed in being predestinated to hell. You absolutely have no choice. Either you are elected uh, by sovereign grace and you're going to heaven, or you've been predestined before time to go to hell and there's nothing you could do about it. Um, Calvin was forced to flee his native France and he ended up in Geneva, Switzerland. And if you do a study on this, he was a complete and total dictator. He made Geneva his town. And you lived and died. Um, John Calvin was a premeditated murderer. And uh, what I just said, I'm going to challenge you to be a Brian and do your homework on this guy. Uh, He believed in religious persecution, and I could go on for hours on people that would be put to death um, for something as, uh, um, as, as crazy as uh, laughing out while he was giving a sermon. Um, he would, a girl who struck her parents uh, was beheaded. Uh, from 1541 to 1546, John Calvin caused 58 people to be executed and 76 were exiled. What was their crime? 
um, the most common capital offense was the opposition to infant baptism. Now, we explain why we don't baptize. We'll have a baby dedication. Sometimes when we have one here, people will say, Dwight, will you talk a little bit about why you do it this way? Because I had my family here this morning. And they were brought up traditionally in mainline Protestantism, mainline Roman Catholicism, the importance of attaching salvation to your baptism. When the Bible teaches, you can't find one example of that in the scriptures. It's always believe and be baptized. It's always believing first, and then you're showing that because now I'm a born-again believer, I'm going to symbolically go down, Romans 6, say goodbye to the old man, and um, I'm doing it because the Lord tells me to. He wants me to outwardly not be ashamed of him. I'm a Christian. What are you, you're a grown man and you're going to get dunked in water? That's kind of dumb. Well, yeah, to the world it is foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it's simply an act of obedience. Amen? Simple act of obedience. Why, why be baptized? Answer, because Jesus said so. So now, you have these people genuinely getting saved. The Anabaptists, what they were called. And uh, they said, no, 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 no. That's really not what the Bible teaches, John. You see, you're getting it wrong. But in Geneva, if you stood up and made it a stand like I said tonight, I'm a dead man tomorrow. If I lived in Geneva, Switzerland during this time, and people were put to death for it. No different than what ISIS is doing today. Are you a Christian? You're dead. Period. And um, you're done away with. Or convert. And sometimes they don't give you that option. I could go on and on and on about that. I'm going to cut to the quick here. There's a whole story uh, on Michael Severtis, uh, who really tried to stand his ground. He was pre-millennial, premillennial and he rejected Calvin's doctrine of predestination. But uh, what he went through, um, Calvin went out of the way to get him executed. And when it finally went to court, he begged for mercy just to have his head cut off. Calvin would have nothing to do with it. He burned at the stake for a half an hour before he died. And all, would, all this would be done in public so that people would fear in the same way that ISIS cuts people's heads off in public so that it sends a message. And uh, I don't believe for a second that John Calvin was saved. Why anybody would want to associate and call himself a Calvinist, I would have no idea. But it's the trend in what's happening today. Let me sum it up with one paragraph. Biblical doctors show that Calvinism is morally impossible. God could not predestinate one to do right and another to do wrong. One to be saved and one to be lost. Those who believe that God predestined some people to be saved by God's coercive grace, in other words, you have no, you don't stand a chance. You're going to get saved because um, it's coercive and um, um, you can't resist it. And that others are predestined to be lost and cannot be saved because of God's deliberate choice are foolishly wrong. They are wrong in having a doctrine that goes so totally against so many um, scriptures, another gospel, uh, inviting us all to be saved, showing that Christ died for all, that God is not willing that any should perish. The Bible pictures man as a free moral agent, capable of choice. He is morally responsible. And everybody here goes, of course, that's what we believe. And we understand that. Well, not if you're a Calvinist, and not if you, not if you hold to Calvinism. 
I'm just scratching the surface on, on this here. And uh, if you're in Second Peter 2, um, verses um, 1, 5 through 9, let's read this. <clears throat> what this shows us here, if you look at the bottom picture, there's physical birth, and then there comes a moment, age of accountability, where you have to make a decision. You've heard the gospel. And um, that's why there's all, we talk about the unforgivable sin. I've got to wash my hand. We're doing okay. Uh, we talk about the unforgivable sin. Jesus says there's only one sin that, that, that can't be forgiven in this life or the life to come. It's called the unpardonable sin. What is it, this terrible sin? Well, it's hearing the gospel. You clearly understand that what's being presented. And then after clearly hearing it, you clearly reject it. That's the unforgivable sin. Because there is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Oh, you Christians, you're so narrow-minded. We sure are. (laughs) Very narrow, very, very difficult. And um, it'll become more difficult as uh, we insist uh, that there there is no other name. Oh, we could lie about it. But... uh, we would be doing the greatest disservice to anybody if we made mention that Allah and, and um, the God of the Bible are one and the same. They are not. They are, um, um, one's either a liar or a demon, but those are your options. And the other is the true and living God that the, the word of God teaches here. If Calvinism is true, Second Peter 1, 5 through 9 makes no sense because he says, But also for this very reason, give diligence to your faith, uh, virtue, and now we see this building sanctification process. You see a little bit farther down the bottom, by faith you believe that Jesus died for you, and now the sanctification process. This is where uh, what we're reading here. It is a continuation of once you've had faith. Well, then it says add to your faith. What? Well, virtue, become a nicer guy, become a nicer gal. You have a heart for somebody else other than yourself. And to virtue, add knowledge. Gang, we should be the ones, as we watch what's happening in the world, that can discuss um, on an intellectual basis what's happening in the world today from a prophetic, biblical perspective. Somebody want to say amen to that? We're the ones that should be having the answers of what's really taking place today. Take advantage of the news bites. Hand them out, pass them out. The ones that I was reading tonight, they're great. Now, continue on with the sanctification process. To that, add knowledge, add self-control. Okay, so I used to have a violent temper. Over time, the the Lord's going to deal with that, and that's going to go. Chuck tells a great story. He said he had a terrible temper. He'd hit his hammer with a hammer. He'd hit his thumb. (laughs) He'd hit his thumb with a hammer, and that hammer would go flying, and so would a lot of words. And um, that came under control over the years. It's like James and John, the sons of thunder. Terrible temper. They don't want to hear the gospel. Let's call fire down at them. Oh, James, John, you guys, I'm going to call you sons of thunder. You're hotheads. And uh, you need to cool it. You know, that's not, my, that's not who I am. 
self-control to self-control, perseverance. That means you hang in there when it gets tough. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I read a guy like Calvin, I do a little bit of research, I conclude, I'm a fruit inspector. What was his fruit? Premeditated murder. This guy's not saved. This guy's a dictator. He's got a brand new gospel that revolves around him. How did they get along for 1,400 years before Calvin showed up? You know? And all of a sudden, he's got, uh, uh, that's influencing the church. And they're very, very subtle in doing it today. Verse 9. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and he has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so entrance uh, will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, I'll leave it there. And um, that was one little rabbit trail. The other main one out there is, if it's by Romans, just turn to Romans 11 real quickly, and I'll read one verse from there. Paul was saying, Peter, you can't have it both ways. Want to try to keep the law? You couldn't keep it. Why are you putting it on the Gentiles? It's one or the other. It's either grace or works. It's either the law or faith. So if you're in Romans 11, verse 6, that's what Paul is saying here to the Romans. He's saying, if by grace, that it is no longer works. Stop. Let me interject Roman Catholicism. You can't be saved in Roman Catholicism apart from adding um, works as part of the redemptive process. And it's, again, going toe-to-toe here with Peter and Paul. And um, it, gang, it's one or the other. And that's what he's saying here. He says, let me read it again. If by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Isn't that summing it up in just one sentence? It's great. One or the other. Which one do you want? Well, I can't do the perfect work, so I'm really, really grateful for the grace. Amen? Amen. Okay, so that's under fire. Let's go back and look at Psalm 144. 144. Let's just read it, and we'll come back to verse 3. 144. This is uh, very reminiscent to Psalm 18. Uh, almost word for word, David wrote Psalm 18, and he also wrote Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war, and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, that's Psalm, 118, uh, Psalm 18, my refuge and in the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you're mindful of him. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. 
Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot forth your arrows and destroy them. And stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters. For the hand of foreigners and from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speak vain words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. And I will sing a new song to you, O God. On the harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. You see, the person that understands grace and the goodness of the Lord, we, we sing. I don't see a whole lot of singing going on in ISIS, do you? No, nope, you don't. A lot of hatred and um, just the opposite. But the heart that's, that experiences the grace of God is just a, a thankful heart, and uh, it comes out of the heart, and in this case, in the form of music. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speak vain words and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style, that our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields, that our ox may be well laden, that there be no breaking and going out, that they, there be no outcry in our streets. Happy are the people who are in such a state, and happy are the people whose God is the Lord. I mean, when you wake up every morning and you think of the verse, um, um, come on, brain kick in. <laughs> the mercies of the Lord are new and fresh every single morning. What does that mean? It means you got a clean slate when you wake up tomorrow morning. Brand new day, and uh, it's fresh, and uh, that, you know, that just takes all the burden off, and you're free to live in the moment, forgetting those things that are behind, and look, looking forward to the things that the Lord has for us. Produces a happy people. Go back to verse 3, and we'll see how far we get here. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? And then he says, or the son of man, oh, here we have the Trinity, that you might be mindful of him. And now we have Hebrews 2 in the crosshairs here, and that's where we'll probably end up tonight. So let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews 2, this is where this is quoted once again in in the New Testament. Again, this is so rich, I want to read the whole thing. Uh, The danger of neglect. Verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. That's another way of saying backsliding. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedient receives a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How great the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And um, the setting of people free. Telling us here, be careful that we don't neglect it. That our priority should be, seek first what? The kingdom. That's the, the priority. Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us 
by those who heard him. That would be the disciples. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. So the kingdom that's coming isn't going to be under the authority of angels. But one testifies in a certain place, and that certain place happens to be Psalm 144, verse 3. It's quoted. What is man that you're mindful of him? Who are we, Lord, that you are so concerned about us? Or the son of man that you take care of him? And now who is he? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, come and sit at my right hand, son, until I make all the nations sit at your feet and you will rule and reign over them. Where does that come from? Uh, let's read down to, down to verse nine. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But notice this, but now, okay, here we are. Here it is, the end of May, 2015. But now we do not see all things put under him. It's coming, but we don't see that right now. But we do see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Gang, you'll never taste death. You'll never see the grave. To be absent from the bodies, to be present at the Lord, I'm banking on the rapture myself, I'm hoping, because um, I want to I be able to play ball until the Lord takes me out of here, but maybe I won't. If he doesn't, well, that's what we went through last Sunday. And that's just being uh, remembered as one of those who has their names written in the book, and they're already home. I'm sure we're not going to be one bit disappointed if the Lord would take us through death. And the word death is never used, only sleep. So, let's stand, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And we do understand, Lord, that the Psalms are prophetic, but more importantly, they're personal. As we watch this man's life from a distance, how he took his problems to you, how he laid his heart bare before you. And um, as your word tells us, we have not because we ask not. Lord, forgive us for our wasted time. Forgive us for not prioritizing the warning that we see here in Hebrews that we don't neglect such a great salvation. But we realize its importance. We realize, Lord, that the Bible teaches that there really is a heaven and there really is a hell. And we haven't been predestined one or the other, but your word clearly teaches that whosoever will and that you're not willing that any should perish. Lord, help us expose these false doctrines not being ashamed, being bold, just like Peter said up to Paul and said, that's not right, that's not the gospel. Help us have that same tenacity to just stand on your word and say, that's not what this Bible teaches. But help us do it as we read here in the sanctification process of doing it with your love and your grace. So we thank you for your word tonight. Bless your people as we go out. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.